Hello and welcome to the Learning from Legends show with me, Peter Switzer. And this week, I introduce you to the former jailer of the great Nelson Mandela. His name is Christo Brand, and he gives us an insight into how he was influenced by arguably one of the greatest leaders of modern times. This Christo gives jailers a good name. And then I wanted to rerun an interview I did of one of the world's biggest Bitcoin investors, US-based Mike Turpin, who is known as the godfather of crypto. He predicted Bitcoin at $100,000 by year's end. But given the problems for the crypto world, I wonder if he would still say that. Problems? What problems? Let me read to you the start of my story on Switzer Daily today, which sums up the new challenges for Bitcoin fans. And so here we go. And I quote, There's an old saying that nothing is illegal if 100 big US companies like it. But when 100 big US companies are under attack because of the existence of an undetectable means of pocketing a ransom, well, things have to change. And they did overnight with a sensational raid by the FBI on a cyber criminal gang who's been holding big companies to ransom. And so Bitcoin's fate has become more negative, or at least its value has. This strike back by the good guys over the bad guys who use Bitcoin as their chosen means of being paid off could be the first nail in the coffin for cryptocurrencies as we know them. Last night in the US, there was a smashing of a hacker group called Darkside by the FBI that saw the law enforcement agency access the private key or password for one of the hackers' Bitcoin's wallet. And 2.5 million US dollars were was recovered. This comes as calls for governments to get some guts to regulate cryptocurrencies are building worldwide. Both China and South Korea are cracking down on the use of cryptocurrencies. But in contrast, El Salvador's president, I can't pronounce his name, but I'll have a crack at it, Nayib Bukele, is set to make his country the first in the world to formally adopt Bitcoin as a legal tender. If you want to know more, check out my story on Switzer Daily. It's called, Is Bitcoin on Death Row? So, without any further ado, let's go to Christo Brand, the jailer of Nelson Mandela. In 1978, Christo Brand was at Robben Island as a prison guard. And the star prisoner was a gentleman by the name of Nelson Mandela, who was age 16, had been there since 1964. He was still sleeping on the floor, and Christo Brand was his jailer, all of age 18. Christo Brand, thanks for joining us uh, on the program. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Um, it must have been a very special experience. And I want to get to what that special experience was, getting to know Nelson Mandela. But I also want to try and understand what it was like for you as an 18-year-old. How did you actually end up um, being employed in the prison service? What happened in that years, all white children of Africa was forced for military training for two years. One of my friends was called up before me. He died in the military. So I made a decision. I don't want to join the military. We look for something alternative. But then a gentleman visited our school. They're looking for people who can guard prisoners. Mm. I was not interested. I want to become an electrician, I explained to him. But he said you could exempt them from military service. Then I think that's a way to sign up and I can become an electrician in a prison service, and I can help prisoners become electricians. And that's how I end up in a prison service. Okay. So as a young man, influenced by your elders and your, and your society, what was your attitude towards blacks at that age of 18? 
Where I grew up on a farm, I was one day disrespectful to elderly African man when my father gave me hiding and said to me, the person can be black, but a human being like us. God has made us all different colors. We must respect each other as human beings. So I grew up with that respect. And one day was an uprising also in South Africa, where I tell my father, black people burn tires and things in the street. He said, that should have never happened if there was not discrimination in the, against color. Mm. And that's how I grew up, with black people is my friends. Yeah. So, of course, you're lucky to have a father who was, in a sense, in a minority in South Africa at the time. You see, my father was a foreman on a farm. He was very poor. And he was also treated like the workers. And he became very close to workers. And my father was a Christian. And he believed we must support each other. We are human beings. So when you first met Nelson Mandela as a young man, were you politically inclined? Did you know about him before you got to the prison and, and people said you, you'd be looking after him? Or were you just a normal young guy who, who, who really wasn't committed to the, the pretty serious political fights that were going on in those days? You know, when I become a guard and I start working on Robben Island, they told us we're going to meet the biggest criminals in the history of South Africa. I was expecting people with tattoo faces and gangsters. Mm. But when I see these prisoners, they were humble, polite, and respectful. And I didn't know the name Nelson Mandela at all when I started in Robben Island. I never, I never heard this name before in my life. Mm. All these names I see there was new names to me. And that's how I see these old people. But when I heard that terrorist, I was thinking I must hate these guys because they killed my friend on the border. But out of that, I see how they do hard labor in the limestone quarry in places. I start to feel sorry for them because I think back of the time I grew up on a farm with African people. Mm. So when you, you took the job and you were told that these were the, the biggest criminals in the history of South Africa, when you first laid eyes on Nelson Mandela, what, what were your thoughts? My thoughts, you know, when I take Mandela to a visit one day, where I see he was so emotional when he touched that child, when I was kind to smuggle the baby for him, which he was not allowed to see children, I immediately see that's a human being, a person you can trust. And I've seen in a section as a person which everybody looked up to. And I do more research about a man, Nelson Mandela. Then I found out he was a leader of that group of the Ravonia trialists. He was also a lawyer. Then I knew he must be something very intelligent and people recognized. But when I work in a census office, that year he received 55,000 birthday cards from all over the world. That was massive. Then I knew this man must be something special. Mm. So was that when you were very young, in your first year, that 35,000 cards came? That's correct. Mm. That in that year, 1978, my first year, after three months rotating on the Robben Island, they put me in a census office. They helped this guy to unpack these cards, was boxes, boxes piled up to sort out these cards and count them. So we count 55,000. But later we must identify from what countries the cards come from. There was from Australia, America, Germany, all over. But there was only 12 cards from South Africa. That was for me very strange. Those South Africans not know Nelson Mandela. I didn't know him at that stage that well. Only see the name here. I asked the sergeant, why only 12 from South Africa? He said to me, if anybody in South Africa dared to send a card for Nelson Mandela, and the police identified that person, that person should have been arrested. 
90 days solitary confinement, electrical shock, tortured, maybe killed, maybe they totally disappeared. Mm. So I knew what had happened. I, I guess over time you, you've had the um, ability to compare the behaviour of the um, the police. I, I don't want to call them the Secret Service. I, I don't know what the correct name was, but it it seems similar to the Gestapo, and it seems similar to the the um, you know the East German uh, police. Were, were they like that? Were they really, really so? petrified of the threat, that they would do anything to, to nullify the threat? You know, the police which dealt with these prisoners that year was a security branch. Mm. It's a special branch in a police force. Right. You know, they all go out, arrested people. They will torture them, electrical shock them, do bad things to them, maybe kill them. They was really tough. Because I see a lot of prisoners, which was after they've been sentenced, come to Robben Island, they were still in plaster of Paris. They still have the marks on their bodies shoot marks in her legs or whatever, how they was being tortured. So when did you recognise that he was a, a special human being? Was it when the cards started to arrive or was it with your own interconnection with him? No, with my inner connection with Mandela, I see he's a special person stand out. But when I see he's more recognised by government at that stage, it was 1985, after he was in hospital with his prostate, the Minister of Justice had visited Mandela, and then Mandela requested the minister if we can talk again. And when we take him back to the prison, we put him in isolation in the basement of the maximum security prison. And that's the time we take him at night for secret meetings and talks with government. Then I knew he's somebody very special mm. to the government. Government wanted to listen to him. They wanted to get some information from him and things like that. The title of your book is Doing Life with uh, Mandela, My Prisoner, My Friend. When did you decide that you liked this guy? Like you clearly have indicated that you knew he was important, you knew he had leadership qualities and that people around the world um, really respected him. But when did you decide that you liked this person? You know, that moment when I hand over the baby to him, there was a secret between the two of us, the secret of the kindness which we done to, I done to him. Mm. That is when he kept a secret because if that should have leaked out, he should have been in prison. Uh, he should have lost his status and privileges. I should have been in prison for five years, smuggled with a prisoner. That was a born start. But also later years, when I was in a motorcycle accident, I was thinking to ask him for advice. He's a lawyer. And, and what happened with that? He take over control and he drafted letters for me. So I won the case. Mm. And at the same time, when Mandela came to me one day and asked me for, please, Mr. Brandt, can you help me with this? I said, what's the problem? He said, I failed this subject, practical Afrikaans in his LLB degree. And you were speaking the Afrikaans language. Mm. Can you assist me? So I assist him without authorities knew that I assist him helping to pass these practical Afrikaans. That is where we become our friendship. Mm. Um Talking about the, um, the, the, th the threats that you, know, you um, took risk with, the, the incident you're talking about was that Winnie, his wife, wanted to show him his, his grandchild. And so that, that was forbidden under the, the rules of the prison. How did you get around that? How, and, and, and how did you calculate the, the risk? As you pointed out, five years 
jail you could have encountered. How did you deal with that? that? You know, that moment when, when Winnie Mandela was in this cubicle with a non-contact visit, because visit was not contact, mm. and then you have one visit every three months for 30 minutes only, and that moment when I, he, when he told him you've got his grandchild, Zanani's daughter there in the waiting room, he immediately asked me, Mr. Brandt, please, is it possible to see this baby through the window? Which my answer was no to him. I said, Mandela, you know the prison regulations. I could have not otherwise. But later, my superior walked in and he said, five minutes left of the visit. And that moment, Mandela heard that and he looked back and he asked me, Mr. Brandt, can you please ask your superior again if I can just see my wife on a distance through the visiting booth, through this window with the baby infant. When I asked my superior, his answer to me was, he said, Brandt, if you can get hold of that baby without Winnie Mandela, no, Mandela's wife, we can show him the child. So I walked back to Mandela and said, no. Then a window closed. Winnie Mandela has been taken back to the waiting room. But that moment when Mandela stand up, he asked me for a request again and said, please, Mr. Brandt, can you please pass this message to my wife that she must apply for visit for Christmas Day. That was more than six months in advance. Mm. And that moment, my superior walked in and asked, what is the delay? And I explained him this. He said to me, Brandt, fetch his wife back. And Mandela, one minute. That moment, I knew the tape recorders were switched off because everything was recorded that year. Mm. So when I walked into the waiting room, there was rotation of visitors. Winnie Mandela had the baby in her arms. And I look at the situation. I walked straight to and I said, man, can't, can't I hold the baby? I never held the African child. She pushed it in my arms. She opened her handbag. She take out the purse. She tried to bribe me with some money. I said, ma'am, I don't want your money. I will just hold the baby, but please go back into the visiting booth. But when she's in the visiting booth, I locked her in. I sneaked to the side of Mandela. After Mandela passed his message, my superior closed the window. Mandela see him in a passage and he came straight to me. In that moment when he came to me, he take the baby out of my arms, kissed the child twice and was tears in his eyes and he become quite emotional. Mm. You know, that secret was between me and Mandela and my superior at that stage. Nobody was at that place. And um, for me to see a person never see a child was unbelievable. That was after 14 years Mandela held a baby for the first time. That was very strange that the old man become so emotional. Then I feel happy. I could have made him happy that moment to hold his grandchild. Mm. Why do you think your superior uh, had clearly warmed to Mandela? My superior came also from the rural areas in the Eastern Cape. He's speaking Mandela's language, and he's speaking that language. And he knew Mandela already more, longer than I knew him on Robben Island. So he knew Mandela can keep a secret. And that's why he said to me, Brandt, you can do that. How did your experiences with Nelson ultimately influence you and your life? Mandela's influence, his experience in prison influenced my life in such a big way to understand people better, to reach out to people. And, you know, he said to me one day, Mr. Brandt, these beggars on the street, don't give them money, rather give them food or accommodation, but education is the most powerful tool in the hand of the poor person. If that person is educated, he can look after himself in the future and look after his family. And that inspired me. And he also said to me, be always kind to people. Kindness, if you're kind and you're humble and polite and assist people, you will be blessed with good life. And that I believe Mandela was blessed with good life, helping people and be kind to people around him. Have you ever thought about how he could be 
so forgiving given how many years was he put away for? Mandela was 27 and a half years in prison. You know, I never thought a person can walk out of prison with reconciliation in his heart, with a change of mindset to walk out to rec recommend it to people and, and forgive. But he said, we'll never forget, but we will forgive people. I asked him, Mandela, one day, don't you hate the white people of the country? His answer to me was, he said, Mr. Brandt, I can never hate the white people of the country because my comrades are white. I can hate the system who oppress one another. And Mandela have seen the oppression from the white side came by the government forced it to the people. He knew it not come from the heart of the people. That's why Mandela said on one occasion in one of his quotes, he said, a person is born with love, but you learn to hate. If you can learn to hate, you can also love. And that I believe in my heart, that made me also to be kind to people, reach out people and help people around me. When, when people become friends, and clearly you had become a friend of Nelson Mandela, a friend has an influence on a friend. Was there any way you think you might have influenced him? Because in a sense, you knew white people better than he did. Uh, and, he, and you ob obviously talked. Do you ever think that you had some influence on him? I believe I've got some influence on Nelson Mandela because he know the pe white people was uh, was afraid if black people being released, what would happen in South Africa? And he know what he was afraid of. He, he knew what was the fears of white people if black people must take over the country. And with that, he, he could have seen through me if we can talk and communicate and negotiate, things can be cleared up. That's why when he walked out of prison, he said to his comrades, we're not take, we, we're taking the hands of the enemy, work harder than before, that we can build the country together. And he was bringing people together with the World Cup rugby 1995. Mm -hmm. He knew the whites was in for rugby in South Africa. There was a big sport for whites. And then when the ANC wanted to change the name of the Springboks to another name, and the other was the one who stands up to prevent and protect the white sport, if you put it that way, mm. and to protect the Springboks. But through that protection, he brings people together in, in peace and enjoying the games. Mm. He clearly has been identified worldwide as one of the greatest leaders of all time. Uh, you, know, you knew him personally. What do you think were his compelling strengths that really made people want to follow him? I think his strength was he was being very poor. He was fighting the struggle for so many years. And he was first a minor. Then he started educating himself. He became a lawyer. Then he ended up in prison. He was studying further law. And he was there to walk out to bring people together in harmony and peace. He was a person to reach out to every nation and people. He was even reaching out to different church religions. And he was reaching out to the people. And when he was released, he invited the different religions to his place. And he said, they are very important in the communities. And, you know, I th thought we will never have a person like the Mandela again because he was a person who laid a foundation for the New South Africa. He was a person who said on one day at a school we attend, and he was there, he said, Mr. Brandt, you see that kids playing there, black and white. That's a rainbow nation I want to see develop in my country. And I believe... The rainbow nation is developing our company. It brings some big changes in our country to the better. Do you think South Africa today needs a leader of Mandela's quality? 
I, I suggest most countries do, but does South Africa in particular? It will be hard to find another leader like Nelson Mandela. But, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa is in power today. And when Mandela was in power as a president, Cyril Ramaphosa was his right-hand person. He was a person who got the constitution adopted with the National Party that time. Mandela was very proud of Cyril Ramaphosa. He wanted to push Cyril Ramaphosa to become the president. But at that stage, he was too young and he could have not become. But now Cyril Ramaphosa is our president today. He forms the legacy of Nelson Mandela. But the problem with him, people around him is quite corrupt. And the thing is, that's why he opened the wounds of corruption to bring it forward. And with opening that, he can fire, he can take these people to task and fire them, put his own people in and build the country together. Mm. I believe our country is going in the right direction, Mr. I must admit, as an outsider, I, I always like to see that the Springboks have, you know, year by year, more blacks playing in the team. Do you think the country has got to a high watermark when it comes to racial inter interaction? Or, or is there a lot more, more that needs to be done? Okay, there's still a lot to be done in the country. We must still speak to the story of reconciliation and peace. But if you look at the schools today, all government schools are multiracial. Black children and white children grow together. They become friends. My son was in a school with a multiracial school, and his friends is now visiting him and they're visiting each other. So there's already a change in that. In a work condition, it's also black and white working together. You get now and then a small incident happened where people not occurred. And that's why we must change the mindset of the people, that we must accept each other as human beings, like Mandela was accepting everybody as a human beings and like my father. With that kindness, reach out to people, help people, we can be a better country. But there is still a lot to done in South Africa. Mm. Mandela tried to solve the things also with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You know, where people come forward and apologize for what they have done wrong. Where they could have picked up the graves of people which the security branch buried somewhere and over the bodies to the families to rebury the person. And they can be peace. But never forget what happened. And like Mandela said, it must never happen again. Chris O'Brien, it's been a great pleasure talking to you, mate. And um, I recommend uh, people have a look at your book. Is that is that the? I know you've written a couple of books, but is this the one that best tells your story? That is the only book I've got. Mm. It's called In South Africa, Doing Life with Nelson Mandela, mm. my prisoner, my friend, because Mandela wanted a book to be called like that. Mm. But abroad, my book is just called Mandela, My Prisoner, My Friend. It's exactly the same book. Okay. But I'm very proud in the book. I didn't want to write a book. Mandela pressurized me to write a book about the two of us relationship because he said we both come from the rural areas. We go, both come from poor communities. We land up in a city. We both go to schools. I go to, the, to not the military, but to the prison service. But he ended up in prison, and we met each other again there as friends. And so that is through this kindness which we've done to each other, we become very good friends. That's why I'm very proud of this corporate kindness uh, conference which will be in Australia. That is a very good thing. And I hope we can bring also that to South Africa. Okay. So I look forward to one day seeing you here in Australia. I think lots of Australians would love to hear your story. Thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, sir. Welcome to the program, Mike. Glad to be here. 
So tell us why you're described as the godfather of uh, Bitcoin. Actually, it's the godfather of crypto, not of Bitcoin. Right. Uh, Bitcoin was a couple of years before I got into it, um, which was uh, 2008 for the white paper in 2009. Um, I got in just after the first halving, so in early 2013. But I've worked with uh, about two thirds of the market cap of all the cryptocurrencies other than Bitcoin. So Ethereum, uh, Ripple, uh, Tether are, 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 are companies that I've worked with either on marketing or advisory. Right. Now, now, Mike, Bitcoin, of course, is the, the flagship um, uh, cryptocurrency. If it should fail, would it be really bad for all the other cryptocurrencies? Well, it's not going to fail. Uh, it's been 12 years and it's never been hacked successfully. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like saying, will gold fail? Uh, you know, uh, the price may go down. In fact, it, it, it crashed for a while there, but it did mean that it was worthless. So Bitcoin is certainly, a Bitcoin will be here for hundreds of years because it's, it's too big to, the bank's too big to fail. It truly is too big to fail. As long as we have electricity and the internet on this earth, you will have Bitcoin. Okay, but gold, unlike Bitcoin, doesn't have the potential challenge from Janet Yellen, who might turn around and say, we're going to have to put some controls on Bitcoin. What, what is, we're well, hearing this, I'm not saying that that's going to happen, yeah. but there are people well, reading it. People are yeah, reading it. Yeah. So how do you respond I, to that? Sure, this usually happens when the price of Bitcoin goes up. People are trying to make it go down by uh, you know, repeating things, asking leading questions to, to new regulators, uh, you know, and, and people, you know, newbies get scared off and then all of a sudden you see the price go up even higher. Mm. Uh, this is, when you're, when you're here a few cycles, you sort of see this. Uh, you know, uh, Jamie Dimon said he would uh, fire anybody who was stupid enough to buy Bitcoin back when it was about $400 and now uh, JP Morgan is telling his best clients that they should have some Bitcoin in their portfolio, you know, when it hit $40,000, so. Mm. If I was a client of J.P. Morgan's, I'd be like, where were you when it was 400 when I could have really gotten a, a huge return? Yeah. You know, they're, they, they wait until it's safe. But, but Mike, you, you know yourself, Bitcoin is much more volatile than gold. We've seen, what, three 80% falls in Bitcoin over the what, last four or five years. And last week it was, well, a couple of weeks ago it was 40,000, now it's down to 31,000. Explain why it's so volatile. Well, it's early. Uh, if you look at the uh, petroleum when it first came out, it was even more volatile than Bitcoin. It, it would go up like 50x and then crash because they weren't quite sure if it was ever going to uh, replace whale oil. Hmm. Um, and obviously it did. Hmm. So, uh, yes, you can talk about the 80% crashes that have happened every four years uh, when the bubble pops. And uh, you can also talk about the uh, uh, the popping at the end of uh, the Great Recession of 0809 and the Great uh, Depression in the 20s doesn't mean that stocks are uh, something that people should flee from. Uh, you need to study it so that you're not always buying high and, and, and selling low. But there have been very few times that you wouldn't be in profit right now. And in fact, there's, you know, when people say, oh, it went down 80 percent, they forget to mention that there were also times when it up you know, last year was up uh, 350% from for the year 2020. And there were other years that it was up considerably more than that. 2017, it was up uh, 2000%. And 2013, it was up uh, almost 100x. So in general, it's, it's, it's higher than lower. Yeah. And what about the, you know, the concerns of some governments that 
uh, cryptocurrencies generally are being used by uh, people who are trying to cover up their transactions and therefore you've got all the tax offices around the world, you call it the inland revenue, um, all around the world trying to ask, or asking the question, are we missing out on a lot of income that should be taxed? Couldn't that be a potential threat to all cryptocurrencies in terms of well, regulation coming in? It, it's, it's, it's completely false because where most crime is, when you see drug dealers caught, they're not holding uh, Bitcoin wallets. They're, they, they have suitcases filled with cash. So uh, the, the, the latest uh, uh, studies that have been done by uh, groups that have been hired by the, by the US government um, show that uh, last year, approximately one third of 1% of Bitcoin transactions are suspected of possibly being involved in crime. Whereas in terms of US dollars, uh, globally, it's, it's considered around 5%. So cash is always going to be a higher uh, and much uh, harder to trace uh, element. So with governments, what they're actually doing is they're looking to embrace digital currencies that will be printed by the central bank, and uh, they'll be able to then they'll be able to tax absolutely everybody if that's the only thing you can use for, uh, you know, getting you know, paid by government sources. But you're allowed in a free country, uh, both Australia and the U.S. are, you know nominally free countries, right, uh, to be able to go and say, I'd like to get paid uh, in gold. Mm -hmm. And you, you have to pay your taxes based on what the, the price is. Mm -hmm. And you have to pay your taxes based on what the, what the price of Bitcoin is. Bitcoin is not anonymous. It's pseudonymous. It's got numbers that can be trailed. Uh, it would be a horrible thing for criminals to do. And now there are some privacy coins that make it uh, more difficult. But you know, you, once you touch the fiat on-ramps and turn something into dollars, uh, you've got more forms of identification than you have in most industries. So it's just it's just a false narrative to say that. And by the way, the day after, uh, uh, you know, Janet Yellen, uh, you know, kind of stumbled along that answer, she put out a written statement clarifying that she doesn't want to slow down innovation in, in the fintech industry. So, you know, th this was sort of a, uh, a soundbite that, frankly, also did not really uh, crash the markets like it might have a few years ago. Uh, there were times when, you know, when China said that they're not going to let the banks uh, deal with Bitcoin and the market went down 80 percent in a couple of weeks. Uh, here, for every dip, the smart institutions are buying. So is that, that's what's is, happening right now. So is that the strategy when the, the cryptocurrencies get um, taken to the cleaners, that's the best time to buy? Well, I wouldn't say when it's taken to the click. Yes, of course, it's always the best time to buy, mm. right? Uh, and it's also good to buy on the dips on the way up. This is the is the year of Bitcoin summer. There are four seasons in Bitcoin, and this has been established in the algorithms. There's a halving every four years, which means that the amount of new Bitcoin is cut in half. Can you imagine if the amount of gold by law had to be cut in half? That produce, produce, producers were told you can only uh, create half of the new new gold every year by law. Of course, the price would be much higher, but we don't have that. But with Bitcoin, we do have that. Every four years, the algorithm stops putting out new Bitcoin at the same rate. In the first four years, there were 10 million. The second four years, there were 5 million. Then it was two and a half, then 1.25. And so your daily ratio goes down, down, down. And right now, there are three large institutions that alone are buying more Bitcoin every day than the miners have to sell. So that's where you get a supply and demand squeeze. Okay, so why is, is predicting that by December of this year, it'll be a hundred thousand dollars? 
It's actually one of the more conservative predictions uh, because that's the way the, the seasons have worked in Bitcoin. Mm. So you have every four years, you have the halving. That's, that's what I call Bitcoin spring, where the seed of the next uh, boom and bust is, is planted. And it takes usually about a year and change. So far, it's always been in November or December of the year after the halving that you end up having a supply squeeze where the price goes up, new people come in because they see that they're friends or they read the media report that the price of Bitcoin doubled, tripled, quadrupled, and they were skeptical until all of a sudden friends they know made a lot of money. And they're like, oh, I better get in while the getting's good. And of course, that's right before the parabolic shift turns. And uh, so people who bought it at uh, 19,000 were crying a year and a half later when it was 3,500. On the other hand, if they just held on to it, they could have sold it 40,000. So you either hold for the long term and you'll always be fine. There's always gonna be a time uh, to be able to sell it higher or you day trade, in which case you should know what you're doing. You yep. shouldn't be an amateur and trying to play the market on a daily basis. Okay, so I think the last price I saw was 31,000 US dollars. Um, What's what's the the price people should buy into now? Thirty one thousand. Well, you missed thirty. Lower. Um, no, I think I think right now that there's a um, there's resistance at thirty. It cracked through it for like a millisecond and bounced right back yeah. above it. Uh, so it's been going between thirty one and thirty three. I just checked my uh, charts uh, when we when we got on the air here, and it was thirty two nine hundred. So it's getting up to that thirty three level. So what often happens is you'll have a narrowing. Uh, uh, wedge triangle, and then something either breaks to the upside or breaks to the downside. Uh, in the meantime, what typically happens is that uh, the other coins go crazy. If you look at the altcoins, the decentralized finance coins, some of them are up 70% today. And uh, this is typically explained by the big institutions are only looking to buy Bitcoin on dips and then hold it for years. Uh, the professionals, what they call whales, that's anybody with a thousand Bitcoin or more is considered to be a whale. Uh, the number of wallets uh, of a thousand or more has never been higher. In fact, in the last month it's grown, which shows that the very sophisticated old time investors are going in and they're playing these spreads between 40 and 30. They are day trading. They're mm -hmm. sitting there and they're, you know, buying it at buying at 30, selling at 40, and then putting that money into altcoins and then buying back again, and uh, and then they sell the altcoins, and then they have more more Bitcoin. Okay, well, and that's been something that's happened every cycle. Okay, well, one last thing before we we remind people that you and Harry are going to argue this out on Thursday. What's going to take it to a hundred thousand? Apart from the seasonality, it's still a big jump. 40,000 40, to a hundred. What do you think is going to make it do that? Well, again, supply and demand, and this is this will be if it goes to a hundred thousand. From the having last year at 8,500, it'll actually be the smallest jump that it's ever done from the having. The first having was $12. A year and one month later was 1,200, so it was 100x. The second having was at $630. A year and a couple of months later, it was about a year and a half. Again, December was 19,300, so that was 30x. So if it goes from you know 8,500 to only 100,000, you'd only be around. 12x or so. Uh, Tim Draper, the uh, you know famed VC who uh, was laughed at when he bought 30,000 Bitcoin at $700. Uh, now he's a billionaire from that alone. Uh, he's still insistent that it'll be at uh, $250,000. Even Harry said it's got a chance of going up to 300,000, but then he thinks it's going to crash 95%. I don't see that's in the cards. I think it could crash 80%, but it won't be quickly. It'll be in the winter, which is two seasons later, and then that's when you buy back. 
It's That's what I will. It's certainly a uh, an investment product that you have to have a seatbelt on for to hang around with. Mate, thanks very much for joining us. Okay, thank you. That's the show for this week. Thanks for joining us. And as I always say, if you want to get richer, try the Switzer Report. SwitzerReport.com.au for some of the most interesting and successful share tips you've ever seen. Quitting time! Quitting time! Thank you.